Ladies and gentlemen, may I please ask you to welcome to the stage the speakers for the third plenary session of today's LSE Asia Forum and its chair, Professor Arne Westad. This, this. Okay. Okay, good afternoon everyone. Uh, my name is Arne Westard. Some of you may remember me from the opening session uh, of this uh, LSE Asia Forum. And I hope you all had some time for lunch, some time to discuss things with Tim Besley, one of our leading lights at LSE. Uh, in this session, we are going to turn the attention to ASEAN, to the regional organization of this region and its leadership potential. The session is entitled ASEAN Leadership in a Leaderless World and it's led by my dear friend and colleague Professor Danny Kwa who is Professor of Economics and International Development and a Kuwait Professor at LSE and also a key participant in the building of LSE Ideas which we've been doing together for the, the past six years. So uh, Danny will be speaking first, introducing the topic, and then as respondents, we are very lucky we have two eminent people from the region who will be responding to Danny's remarks. First, uh, Asman Mokhtar, who is the managing director of Kasana Nacional, which is the Malaysian sovereign wealth fund. Um, Asman has a long career both in the private and in the public sector and is now heading one of the key institutions in this country, or indeed within the region. And following from him, we have Professor Kishore Mabubani. Kishore is um, the Dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, but he is better known as one of the leading public intellectuals of this region, someone who's really helped to put Southeast Asia on the map in terms of the debates about international affairs, and international developments. Many of you will have read his different writings and his books. The one that made the most impression on me is the phenomenally well-named book, Can Asians Think?, uh, that came a few years ago. So welcome to all three of you, and I'm looking forward to the discussion and the questions and answers at the end of the session. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Danny. Please. Thank you very much, Arnie. The theme of this panel is ASEAN leadership in a leaderless world. And what I want to do to begin our discussion, to set the stage, as Arnie says, is to show you two facts. The first fact is this one. Earlier today, we already heard reference to how the world's center of gravity has become Asian. That is a metaphor, but that metaphor can actually be made literal. I went away and I did those calculations, and you come back with, what you come back with from calculating with the world's economic center of gravity is this picture. For most of the last century, up until the 1980s, 
the center of the world's economy was mid-Atlantic. In that sense, in its being transatlantic, that presents no surprise to anybody. Most everyone thinks of the 20th century as being a mixture of Western European and North American. In that sense, it is right that the world's economic center be firmly in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, here's the change. Here's the change that leads to today's discussion. In the last 30 years, the world's economic center has arced 5,000 kilometers eastwards across the surface of our planet. It has moved from west of London, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, to east of London, east of Bucharest, east of Helsinki, to last year where it was sitting in the Gulf. If this momentum continues, and it is not a naive linear momentum, it comes from studying, courtesy of my friend Ricky Burdett, and other people who work on the economics of cities, it comes from trying to understand the dynamics of how cities grow, the evolution, co-evolution of regional and urban agglomerations. The world's economic center <coughs> in the next 25 years will sit on the boundary between India and China. It will be in this time zone. The world's economic center within our lifetime will have moved 9,000 kilometers, one and a half times the Earth's radius, across the surface of this planet eastwards. That is the change that we need to come to terms with when we think about ASEAN leadership in the new world. I promised you two facts. What's the other one? This is the other fact. For the sake of argument, suppose you go to a point in the South China Sea and you draw a circle around it, 4,000 kilometers in radius. That circle that's drawn in this picture is tiny. A circle 4,000 kilometers in radius covers only 25 million square kilometers of livable land. 25 million square kilometers is only one-sixth of this planet's inhabitable land. But here's the interesting fact. Within this tiny circle live more than half the world's population. In, politi in political science, in political economy, we have this idea that in democratic systems, the way we come to making choices about the things that matter is that the median voter decides, the 50th percentile decides. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the 50th percentile, the median voter, is possibly someone in this room. And if, this, if the world were a perfect democracy, that someone in this room would be decisive for matters of world leadership and global governance. This is where decisions about the world of global significance ought to be made. Those are my two facts. Where do we go from here? Why is it that I can want to use these two facts to set the stage for my friends Kishore and Tansri Asman to come up here and tell you about ASEAN leadership? Why do these facts matter to us now in this room? Why should the ordinary, hardworking, average citizen in Malaysia, or indeed anywhere in this region, in the rest of ASEAN, care about this? These are large-scale, macroscopic, geopolitical, and geoeconomic calculations. Why are they relevant to us? Here's why they matter. These calculations raise the question, who manages order in the world? Who do we want to lead and shape our world? These calculations predict that within our lifetime, the economic center of the world will be among us. It will be at a resting point close to us. 
within our lifetimes, this economic center will be within this time zone. And what that means is that if the world's modes of global governance do not change, if the world leadership, if world leadership remains firmly embedded on the transatlantic axis or in Washington, D.C., then the world's economic and political landscapes will be severely fractured. We will see a severe disjuncture, 10 time zones different, between the world's economic and political landscapes. This sharp separation between economic and political poles is actually one that is familiar to members of this audience. This fracture appears routinely in our traditional historical narrative of Malaysia's own development. Remember, in that narrative, it was exactly the perception of a separation between economics and politics that, in that narrative, led to violent racial riots in 1969 and then to the new economic policy in 1971 that sought to remove this disjuncture between economic and political poles. It sought to eradicate poverty regardless of race, and it sought to remove the identification of economic function with ethnicity. This idea is actually one that's very close to our hearts here in this room. But more generally, across all of ASEAN, Malaysians, the citizens of any other country, we want our lives and those of the people around us to be peaceful, prosperous, and comfortable. We want freedom from the insecurity of economic instability. We do not want to live in a system that is unfair and unjust. We want to live in a society that rewards the economics breadwinners for the contributions that they make to that society. In the interconnected world that we live in today, we're going to have none of these things if we don't have the right leadership in our region or in the world. And just as one example, in the world today, quantitative easing in the United States, if it looks, looks out only for the well-being of its own citizens, will seriously destabilize financial and housing and economic markets elsewhere in the world. It seriously destabilize the economic livelihoods of us here in this part of the world. What is a resolution of this? It is a resolution that I want to describe to you quickly and then turn you, hand you over to people who actually know great detail about this region. In economics and international relations, in the areas, in the disciplines of study that Arnie and I represent up here on stage at LSE and that our colleagues talk about, there's a branch of reasoning known as hegemonic stability theory. I know that's a mouthful. It doesn't roll off the tongue the same way that game theory or behavioral economics does. But it is a branch of reasoning that suggests that the world economy and regions in the world are at their most stable when the world has one leader or one global hegemon. Now, Kishore, up on stage with me here, has compared the world's interconnectedness to how all the different economies in the world now are like different cabins in an ocean liner. And global leadership needs to be mindful of steering that ocean liner 
rather than just looking out for its own interest. That is the worry of a leaderless world. But in worrying too much about the leaderless world, we might end up, I fear, grasping at straws. We fall back on old patterns of thinking. We go back to the traditional hegemon, the United States, who, for reasons of fact number one that I told you, might no longer be qualified to be that world leader. Take this down to ASEAN, and then I'll hand over to Kishore and, and Asman Mokhtar. Do we have the right kind of leadership in the world today? Do we have the right kind of leadership in ASEAN today? From my reading of what goes on around here, the answer is no. And our job as concerned citizens, as scholars and thinkers, is to work our way towards such an enlightened leadership. In the world, definitely, and to a great extent in ASEAN, a leadership would bring about coordination in our policies, economic, financial, social, and political. Coordination in ASEAN and elsewhere in the world is the exception rather than the rule. Across ASEAN and across the world, nations disagree about objectives. Misalignment is rife on incentives and goals. Much more prevalent is misunderstanding and ignorance rather than leadership for the sake of the region. Just as a concrete example, ASEAN seeks to build an integrated market, an ASEAN economic community by 2015. Indeed, tariffs across ASEAN have fallen to 0% for almost over 90% of the goods that we trade across ASEAN. But astute observers, such as my friend Nazir Razak, describe how economic nationalism remains a great challenge to ASEAN and the economic community. The concept of national identity in this region far outweighs any ASEAN or regional identity. Nazir describes how government leaders in this part of the world like to talk regional, but as politicians at home, they nearly always act national. For ASEAN, there is insufficient individual government participation at ministerial level. And Nazir suggests that instead, what we need to do is to galvanize support and momentum by urgently growing to success a small number of iconic ASEAN projects. We do not yet have those, but these will showcase collaboration. Today, earlier this morning, we talked about waiting for the United States or China to sort out whether it's going to be number one or number two. Today, within ASEAN, we need leadership across the region. But you know what? It might no longer matter who is number one or number two in the world. The point of global leadership or regional leadership is to provide global public goods. In a world that has grown rich, in a world where in ASEAN, the economic center of the world is already located, we are already rich enough to provide those regional public goods for ourselves. And leadership in the world should no longer look at across to the transatlantic axis or even up north to the world's number two, soon-to-be number one economy. ASEAN today should provide its own leadership. And it's only in that way that it will, need, that it will know 
that that leadership looks out for the well-being of the people in this part of the world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Danny. I should also mention that Danny Kuo, of course, is the director of the LSE's new Southeast Asian Center, as was announced by the school director, Professor Calhoun, earlier today. We now turn to the first of the respondents. Uh, Asman, do you yeah. want to speak from the podium? Yeah, please. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you very much. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum and a very good afternoon. I think as the other Malaysian on the panel, uh, Dennis from Penang actually, I should belatedly welcome you to Kuala Lumpur. Um, you know, um, so I should try and respond. I think first of all to give a bit of context, uh, Danny posed several questions and the title itself of the session is I think deliberately provocative, ASEAN leadership in a leaderless world. Uh, but uh, with, I think, Kishore's um, scope and expertise in geopolitics and I think my own background more on the business side and as running sovereign fund, I think probably I would like to focus more on the economic side. But inevitably, some aspects of the geoeconomics, at least, I think will need to be covered. I've got three key points, basically, in the 10-15 minutes given. Um, to the answer, ASEAN leadership in a leaderless world, I think right up front, I think ASEAN can certainly contribute to the global discussion about how to manage, if not lead, in a leaderless world. I think the concept of a leaderless world itself is something I'm sure ideas and LSE uh, and other parts of the world have been debating the unipolar world moving into a multipolar world, the so-called G0 world, and so on and so forth. So I'm not really going to contest that, just that I think to my mind, since 2008, uh, the biggest crisis financially, potentially, not potentially, has spilled over into the social space and the political uh, space as well. In many places, I'm afraid... Uh, we, you know, to paraphrase someone else, that we have lost the opportunity of a great crisis because fundamentally the world has not really changed in a lot of the problems. Um, it's been five, six years since Lehman. The monetary base of the world has doubled, uh, i.e. QE and so on and so forth. Uh, but, you know, in terms of structural reforms, too little I was about to say too late, but essentially it's, you could argue there's a bit of a Ponzi scheme going on and we're just doubling up into whenever the next crisis will come. You know? So that's slightly despondent, but uh, possibly not too far off. And I see a number of people nodding their heads, uh, not falling asleep, but you know, possibly agreeing with that. I don't know. So, you know, the problem of the commons is a big problem. I guess, uh, again, Kishore, over to you on events in Crimea and other places, I guess uh, Syria and so on and so forth. You know how to talk about this. I think Obama's big success was really killing bin Laden, uh, which, as somebody pointed out, you know, just required 
the concurrence and alignment of the SEAL team, basically, not some big multinational, transnational effort, right? So where does ASEAN stand in there? I think my simple thesis is ASEAN is a successful region in absolute terms, in relative terms. Of course, it's got its weaknesses and gaps. Uh, our big event was not the 08 crisis, but of course was the 98 crisis. That was our crucible moment. And the 10 years from 98 to 08, I guess we were busy in the gym. And uh, you know, if 98 was a heart attack, as one of your LSE alumnus, I should embarrass him, he's my board member, Tan Sri Azmanya here, said that was a heart attack moment in 98. Uh, if anything, we got other kinds of not quite rich men or women disease, but different kind of disease. Like we, we got you know, maybe diabetes or hypertension that we need to shed off, those kind of stuff, right? So have we been in the gym? The general answer is we think so. Should we be in the gym more? Yes. Uh, you know, for example, our banking systems, our financial systems, corporate governance, risk management, those kind of pretty boring stuff, but very important stuff we've been busy doing, such that when 08 came, you know, we were relatively okay, right? Uh, secondly, in a G0 world, and all these talks about pivot and shadow states and pivot states, I guess ASEAN would be your classic pivot state, or pivot region at least. We are a threat to nobody. Uh, we, are, we have a long history of absorbing ideas, talent, capital from all over the world. We can be friends. In fact, we are friends with practically everyone, uh, which is maybe, I don't know, where we can argue about that. But um, the notion of ASEAN itself started with a rather colourful somewhat of a mouthful acronym called ZOPFEN. So I think Kishore and others will remember this. Zone of Peace, Freedom and Neutrality. So, you know, this is very 1960s or 70s. ZOPFEN, right? You know? Uh, you could, you know. So essentially, it was from a Cold War era. And if the great power rivalry is going to come again, so what? We've been through that before. We can be, you know, we are not a threat to anyone and therefore as a pivot state where we've built layers of, you know, basic infrastructure, basic services, take out people out of poverty, you know, reduce infant mortality, stuff like that. I don't know, all those development stuff across ASEAN and even the last state, i.e. Myanmar, is coming out of that. Then you build your economic layers, your business layers and then social and political stability. Um, so I think with that, I think, and location, of course, matters, geography matters. Uh, in that sense, we, you know, we are blessed with good geography, quite good history, uh, you know, and, and all the locational advantages that brings. We can work with the West, we can work with the East, we can work with the North, we can work with the South. So, and then what has happened the last five years is a slowdown, I think we were not so much the hot stuff perhaps in the years after 98 because suddenly, you know, the reversion to mean of the economies of India and China and perhaps a, a reawakening of Latin America and Brazil and so on and so forth. Now, today, I think we've been chugging along ASEAN 5, 6%, whatever, or thereabouts, steady, but the others have slowed down somewhat. I think India has gone through 
you know, some turbulence on governance, national and uh, corporate and so on and so forth. So I think ASEAN looks better as a result in a relative sense. So the first point really is around that we can certainly contribute to the global commons, so to speak, but we can't solve it. I think nobody seems to be able to solve it, uh, which implies essentially a suboptimal world, you know, whether you call it G0 or you know, there's no real order of power, you know, you're not going to solve the problem of the global commons, but you can find your niches and you know, second-order equilibriums within that. And ASEAN is, is in there. Uh, it's, of course, not all rosy. The second point is around ASEAN challenges, and I'll, I'll end briefly on what I see as opportunities some already mentioned. The AEC 2015 is both a challenge and an opportunity. I think slightly cliched, but that's what it is. I think, among other things, as I said, ASEAN really started as a agglomeration from the Cold War. Of course, we've developed that. I think that's a very ASEAN thing of non-interference and so on and so forth, good and bad. I think we, we buy more, you know, a kind of a loose alliance rather than rigid structures. We've seen what happened in Europe and the currency and so on and so forth. Those are fairly rigid structures, which the nature of rigid structures is they tend to get brittle and break at, at certain points. Eh? Um, so if God had also intended this beautiful geography to be contiguous, he would not have made ASEAN into an archipelago. So there is an issue around contiguity and scale and the ability to build businesses across this archipelago. I think some well-documented reports that a bar of soap, certain you know, weightage in Indonesia is not the same in Thailand, not the same in Malaysia, etc., etc., and the question of standards and so on. Um, I think where ASEAN, notwithstanding we've been in the gym, but we can control global stuff, for example, QE, the wall of liquidity, which is you know, a double-edged sword. It's your friend one day, it can, be, it can hurt you another day. Uh, we are price takers, basically, like most of the rest of the world. I think the argument about a leaderless world, perhaps, the ones who are really running the world are the central bankers. Because they are the guys with the printing machines. And indeed, well, I don't think they have much paper shredders, but they're more printing machines, right? <laughs> and, and therefore, the debilitating effects of the, you know, the wall of liquidity, it's a long subject, so I wouldn't go off topic. And with that, actually, we also face, in my mind, the greatest problems of our times is probably around inequality. And ASEAN has actually grown, not just in Malaysia, I think Danny covered this, we try to grapple things around social coherence, around growth with equity and things like that. The, the whole development puzzle, uh, I think we're right in the middle of that. And for example, in Malaysia, we've just gone through a very tough first quarter. You know, it's not just our missing aeroplane and stuff like that, but in January, Prime Minister, having won two elections last year, both the general elections and the UMNO elections, did the hard thing of raising prices on certain items where government was subsidizing or over-subsidizing at least in many areas. The markets loved it. The financial uh, rating agencies loved it. The people were very unhappy, right? And fiscal, you know, governments are fiscally challenged, constrained. Malaysia is no exception. ASEAN governments are generally no exception. 
So where does it take? To lead properly, we need to mature and the issue of institutions, I think really, uh, you know, if we were to take an institutional approach to things, which I'm obsessed about, I run an institution, I'm trying to build an institution, I'd like to think in Malaysia we've been blessed with very strong economic institutions on the likes of Bank Negara, our central bank, Petronas, our pension funds, and hopefully Kazana is in that same category as a bulwark against both global cycle, political cycles, and so on. We are not so used, uh, and as the country develops, the issue whether institutions around political institutions or other civil institutions, you know, judiciary and so on and so forth. A country like Thailand, for example, they're used to having you know, looser political centre and stronger institutions around that. So this kind of arrangements and rearrangements and reconfigurations on the institutional front as Malaysia and the ASEAN countries develop is absolutely key. The good news is I think by far the positive things matter more. I think if there's a global tsunami from you know, reversal or quantitative easing, uh, you know, sooner or later is a big debate. But when it comes, people feel, then what happens? I think, I think you can't hide, actually, if there's a big wall tsunami coming in, but you can certainly try to get your house in order. And to the extent that ASEAN gets its house in order, mm. I think that it's not an, just an absolute game. This wall of liquidity is going to hit, not evenly, but it's going to hit, you've got to be better than other regions, I'm afraid. You've got to certainly be better than other countries. You've got to be better than Argentina. You've got to be better than whoever else along the whole chain. Because it is, it is, a, it is a packing order, you know, quite brutal game uh, in the financial markets. And, and that financial tsunami is going to spill over into the economic, potentially social and political space as well. So I'm, I'm bullish. The, the regional business models, I don't have time to elaborate. I think Kazana, we've been building. As I said, whatever the politicians or G2G or AEC does... For example, sovereign fund, the sovereign fund, I think we've got a couple of joint investments with Tamasek, as an example, uh, that helps to build the economic linkages between the two countries. Uh, I think the, the amount, the values are big, I think totaling about 10 billion US dollars value. Uh, the stuff that we do in Indonesia and, and reciprocal arrangements and so on. North Asia, very briefly, I think there's an interesting case of arbitrage between North and Southeast Asia. I think uh, we're almost mirror images in terms of demographics, in terms of weather, in terms of space availability, in terms of factors of production in many areas, in terms of uh, you know, amounts of wealth and so on and so forth. Eh? And uh, too, too much to elaborate, but for example, Japanese investors are coming into Malaysia in a fairly major way as our partners investing into many industries. So I'll stop there to say that, yes, ASEAN leadership I think before we talk about the world, we need to do more to make sure our houses are in order. I think the picture is generally there. Of course, there are issues. Uh, but certainly we can contribute, if not necessarily help fully, uh, the issue of a leaderless world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Asman. Lots of food for thought there that we will return to in the discussion. Kishore, please. Uh, thank you, Ani. Let me begin by saying that as the dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, it gives me 
a real pleasure to be here at the LSE conference because our school, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, has a partnership with LSE. You're the first Asian member to join the Global Public Policy Network that was set up by Columbia, Sciences Po in Paris, and LSE. And I'm glad, uh, Craig, you welcome us into your club. And, of course, we also have a double degree program with LSE. So I thought this is a chance to come and join a meeting with many friends, and especially friends like old friends like Denny and Asman. Now, I have been given permission uh, to be slightly provocative, right? <laughs> so I'm like Asman. I'm going to make three points. Let me tell you quickly what the three points are, and then hopefully I'll finish that in 15 minutes, and then we can have a discussion. My first point, and this is, this is where I'm just going to begin by slightly differing from the theme of the session, which says that we are a leaderless world. I say, no, we have a leader. It's called the United States of America. But it is leading us in the wrong direction. <laughs> Secondly, the other potential global leader we have which is the other center of power in the world, which is Europe. But that continent has gone from being a brave continent to becoming a cowardly continent, frightened to take on the responsibilities that it could. And finally, in the case of ASEAN, I would say the greatest danger that ASEAN faces in this environment is to be complacent and to assume that things will go well. And I actually think that in 2015, when the ASEAN leaders meet and announce the ASEAN economic community, the worst mistake they can do is to say everything is going well, when we know it's not. So let me go back to my first proposition. Why is the United States leading us in the wrong direction? The answer is very simple. It's leading us in the wrong direction because the world has changed fundamentally. And you got a glimpse of it in Denny's uh, slides. Indeed, we have seen more change in the last 30 years than the previous 300 years. But American foreign policy continues on autopilot, not realizing that the world has changed fundamentally. And to, to illustrate, to elaborate on my point, how the world has changed fundamentally, it's changed fundamentally in three different ways. One, and we all know this, intuitively and with all the data, that we now live in a very small, interdependent universe in our planet. And I'm glad that Danny referred to the, the analogy I use in my latest book, The Great Convergence, where I say in the past, when 7 billion people live in 193 separate countries, it was as though they were living in 193 separate boats with captains or crews to take care of each boat. But today, with the world having shrunk, the 7 billion people no longer live in 193 separate boats. They live in 193 separate cabins on the same boat 
But the problem with our global boat is that your captains or crews taking care of each cabin and nobody's taking care of the global boat as a whole. And that, I suppose, reinforces your point that we live in a leaderless world. But on this boat, there is one dominant country, the United States. And if it doesn't change course, it creates problems for the world, as I'll explain later. The second way in which the world has changed fundamentally, and we got a glimpse of it in the first session, we're going to see this amazing transition of power, where for the first time in 200 to 250 years, the number one power in the world will be a non-Western power, China. And when you have such a major geopolitical shift, you cannot carry on on autopilot. And thirdly, we are also moving as a consequence of that from a mono-civilizational world to a multi-civilizational world, where we're going from one single successful dominant civilization to a world of many successful civilizations. This is how the world has changed fundamentally. So what is the United States doing wrong in this setting? The first fundamental mistake that the United States is making is that it is continuing with its old policy of weakening multilateral organizations at a time in a small interdependent world we need stronger multilateral organizations rather than weaker multilateral organizations. Now, you may be a bit skeptical. You say, what proof do I have that the United States is weakening multilateral organizations? Don't take my word for it. Read the memoirs of John Bolton, the former United States ambassador to the UN, and he puts it in print. He said when he came to selecting the next Secretary General, Condi Rice and I discussed it, and we both agreed that we didn't want to have a strong UN Secretary General. At a time when you have a leaderless boat, when you need to have a stronger captain in the United Nations, the United States selects a weaker rather than a stronger captain. And I saw that Asman referred to global commons several times. Do we want to live in a world where we, the problems of global commons become bigger and bigger, and the people we select of it who run it are weaker and weaker. But let me make a more fundamental point here. I suspect that many of you, hearing what I've said so far, may believe, ah, this guy, Kishore, he must be anti-American. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that was in your mind. But I can tell you, that what I'm prescribing for the United States of America is something that is fundamentally in American national interests. And fortunately for me, as I was writing the book, The Great Convergence, I found this remarkable speech by Bill Clinton, who will go down as one of the wisest leaders that America has had. And in this speech in Yale in 2003, Bill Clinton said, hey, if you're going to be number one forever, fine. Let us carry on doing whatever we are doing. 
it doesn't matter because we'll be number one forever. Then Bill Clinton added, but if we can conceive of the possibility that we might be number two someday, then surely it is in the interest of America today to strengthen international organizations, strengthen international laws, strengthen international regulations. It is an American national interest to do this. And I sometimes say even more provocatively that every loophole in international law that America creates today is a loophole in international law that China will walk through tomorrow. So is it in American national interest to have all these loopholes in international law? And what is truly puzzling in all this is that America is a society that has the best universities, the best think tanks, and yet they are unable to persuade either their leaders or their population that the world has changed fundamentally and America must change course fundamentally. That's why, Ani, you referred to my book. My first book was Can Asians Think? Someday I'm going to write a book called Can American Think Tanks Think? (laughs) (laughs) Because the evidence is in doubt. And it's, it's, by, this, by the way, it's also a serious point. It's a, good, it's a good joke to make, but it's also a serious point because it is puzzling that the best funded, the best staff think tanks are completely failing in their mission. Now, let me turn quickly to my second point about Europe. And here the tragedy is that in private Europe has been giving the right advice to America. It's been telling America climate change is real. Do something about it. It's been telling America ratify the International Criminal Court. Join it. It's been supportive of international laws. Europe has been saying the right things. But when it comes to the crunch when it has to tell his good friend America that it is going on the wrong course, it never does so. Now, there was a brief mention of Crimea by Asman. It's a complex subject, but I can tell you it's worth studying in detail at some point in time. Because on the one hand, it is clear that what Russia did was illegal under international law. International law doesn't allow Russia to seize Crimea. But at the same time, a factless European policy pushed Russia into a corner and forced it to act in the way that it did. And I can tell you, I don't know how many of you remember this. Eh? There was this remarkable statement, which will go down in diplomacy, it was one of the most unforgettable statements in diplomacy. There's a lady called Victoria Nuland, an assistant secretary of state, who said it, and it was caught on microphone. She used a word which I cannot use here. She said, AF, the European Union. Mm. (laughs) And what did the European Union do? Nothing. 
So it is a tragedy. And I think, frankly, this is the reason why I'm saying these things, is that many Asians assume that they have no responsibility at all to managing the global order, that they can continue to be passengers on the bus, and that it be driven still by the Americans and the Europeans. Be careful. They may not necessarily drive the bus to where you want to go. So you've got to think very hard now, as Asians, what is your role and responsibility in the world order? You can no longer be passengers anymore. So this brings me to my final point about ASEAN. And I can tell you that if you look at where ASEAN is historically today, on the one hand, it's going to have the greatest opportunity ASEAN has ever had in its history. Why? Answer is simple. Look at Denny's chart. The center of gravity of world economy is going to be parked just north of ASEAN. And if there's a rising economic tide in this region, ASEAN will rise with it. So it's a tide that ASEAN can take advantage of. But at the same time, this is also a moment of one of the greatest dangers that ASEAN is facing, because when you have a geopolitical shift of power, when you move from a world where United States goes from being number one to number two, and China goes from being number two to number one, history teaches us that such shifts of power almost never happen smoothly. So far, by the way, we are experiencing a geopolitical miracle of the highest order. We are coming very, very close to one of the greatest shifts of power, and there's remarkable geopolitical calm in our region. But this can change. And ASEAN got an early warning in July 2012, after 45 years of issuing remarkably boring joint communiques, which no one ever read, but it was important that they were issued in 2012 for the first time in 45 years, ASEAN failed to agree to a joint communique. Why? Because nine of the ASEAN countries said it must refer to the South China Sea, and one of the members said, no, 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 we cannot refer to the South China Sea because it is anti-China. And I'm really glad that that happened. I'm really glad that ASEAN failed in 2012 because it's the best way to produce a wake-up call for ASEAN and say, you cannot carry on on autopilot. There are new challenges coming, and you have to do some things differently. And this is why 2015 is an extremely important year in the history of ASEAN. Next year, the leaders will meet, and I guarantee you, I can tell you what the headlines are. They will declare success. <laughs> They'll say, we have established the ASEAN Economic Community, the ASEAN Security Community, and we will all clap and cheer. But look at the details. 
And I can tell you in many of the areas, be 60% implementation, 70% implementation, and that's become par for the course for ASEAN. Now, what's, what was par for the course in a world which is comfortable is no longer acceptable in a world that may become uncomfortable for ASEAN. So I, my big message to all of you is that this is the moment when ASEAN must think hard and deep about where it goes next. It should stop being complacent and say, now is the time to decide how ASEAN can lead this region. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kishore. Elegant and provocative, as always. Be very grateful to you. Now, in order to start off the discussion, I want to pick up on where Kishore ended uh, with regard to ASEAN as a regional organization. I want to turn to the panel just briefly for some reflections on that strategy that you found so missing. So if we look beyond 2015, what are, in your view, thinking 10 years ahead, what are the limits to ASEAN integration? What kind of vision do you think ASEAN ought to develop, or the individual leaders of ASEAN ought to develop, for what can be achieved within the organization itself in terms of further integration leading on from 2015? Asman, could I, could I start with you? Um, yep. The, I think I kind of alluded in my short presentation earlier that uh, you know, <clears throat> from a business standpoint, I think we, Kazana companies, actually, we've made it into both a strategy as well as an injunction on our companies to go out and build regional platforms uh, when we started this journey about 10 years ago in the belief of one, Malaysia is good, but too small on its own. Two, if regional if not already equals to, but will eventually be equals to global standards, you know, with the onset of globalization, it's a way of benchmarking competitiveness. Right? So some of our leading companies are well on that path, the likes of CIMB and Axiata, our phone company, our healthcare company, some of our infrastructure companies and so on. Uh, so what I alluded to was really, I can't control, you know, as Kishore said, what joint communiques will come out with and whether this is really going to pull off and what will be the tax rate or what uh, Danny referred to, what Nazi was saying on you know, politicians acting local, etc. Uh, so, but what we can control is work out workable, mutually beneficial business models across the region. And this is already happening. It's not just Kazanas companies. Some of the Singaporean companies, you're seeing this uh, you know, Air Asia, for example, has built this. So not not government-linked companies. It's uh, Genting, uh, plantation companies, etc. Uh, Thai companies from Siam Cement. Some of the agriculture companies, Filipino companies. Are, today, you see in Malaysia, Petron, for example, is a, in the retail network, eh, and so on. And of course, multinationals are building regional platforms. So, to me, the key, the proof of the pudding, so to speak, is. From a business standpoint, if economic integration actually means microeconomic integration, I think 
we should look out for those factors. Now, trade, some of those trade barriers, or, but there's of course non-trade barriers, you know, whether this really comes through, you know, that, that process, as you know, will, will uh, kind of linger on, like, that will take time. I would look at more the investment climate and the ability to build business models across. I think we quite wisely don't even get close to the issues around currency unions or fiscal unions. I think there's good examples of what not to do. And ultimately, I think some of these big grand ideas of you know, ASEAN projects, whether to build I don't know, aviation industries in Indonesia, or I think there's several that appears compelling. For example, some ASEAN states are energy surplus. Some are quite energy deficient. It would suggest, and you know, energy doesn't really care about national borders. They just turn up wherever they turn up. So for Malaysia, Singapore, for example, much closer to Sumatra, but Sumatra is working under Jakarta, for example. So you've got to figure out. There's a long proposal from a long time ago about an ASEAN energy grid. Why can't we do this? Why can't we do train systems, for example, that cut across... Malaysia and Singapore, uh, on Monday, actually, the two prime ministers will meet for our annual bilateral. And one of the topics that was announced earlier, actually, was announced last year, was to build a high-speed rail link from KL to Singapore. So you wonder why can't it go to Bangkok eventually? In fact, Thailand is talking about building a link to Kunming in China, in southern China, as an example. Uh, But my favourite cross-ASEAN example, so I never throw away the chance to preach to an audience, is what is it that binds ASEANites together? I would submit, you know, because of this archipelagic thing, you know, we are quite nice different cultures. The leisure tourism, of course, works well. Is rice. We all eat rice. In fact, we get severe withdrawal symptoms if we don't eat rice for a few days, <laughs> as I do. Uh, and secondly, f- apart from Philippines, well, football. <laughs> Philippines, of course, to apologies to my Filipino friends. Uh, so, rice and football, just like bread and circus, I suppose. You know, if you can figure out, so my favorite, this one, Kishore, uh, all of us are very, very keen on football, but we're not very good at football. Our best team is Thailand, actually, about 105, so Malaysia's 150 or something like that. But all the big teams come to this part of the world, eh? the English teams, the Spanish teams. So if you do a spread between interest and ability in football, we're the largest gap. So we will never get the World Cup on our own. So we should combine, <laughs> and four countries at least should bid for the next World Cup. Even the Qataris can get it, so ah. why not us? So that's basically my favourite ASEAN project. Now that's a very laudable aim. <laughs> I, cheaper, I must say, of the many suggestions I've heard for further ASEAN integration, that's probably the best one. <laughs> yeah. Certainly the most fun, but never mind. So, business integration, financial integration... More rice and football. Uh, that's where we're heading. Kishore. Well, you know, by the way, I want to... Is this working? Yeah. Nope. Um, I, I completely agree with everything Asman said. Huh? And I strongly support the football part. And I think really it's time for ASEAN to host the, the, the World Cup. And we can do it if we all work together. And we, if we can, we have the facilities to do so. But just going back to ASEAN for a minute, I actually think the key thing about, that I, lesson I learned about regional organizations is that countries never come together 
out of love. They come together out of fear. And what triggered the ASEAN economic community was the realization in the 1990s that China was, you know, sucking away FDI. ASEAN, which was a favored destination for FDI in the Cold War, suddenly found that it was losing it to China. And of course, if you're, if you're a foreign investor, you get cheap labor, cheap land, uh, reliable logistics, and you go to China. And so in response to that, the ASEAN countries realized that they have to create a single economic community to compete with China and also eventually with India. Unfortunately, that fear, for whatever reason, went down unwisely. And so they've gone back to some of their protectionist instincts of the individual ASEAN countries. I mean, to give you an obvious example, ASEAN is not big enough to have several different auto industries, right? It's got to be focused on one or two countries. But if each ASEAN country wants to have an auto industry, then we're basically killing ourselves in terms of economic competition. That's an obvious example. So this is where the hard decisions will have to be made uh, in 2015, and we have to bite the bullet. Each ASEAN country must make some sacrifices, because at the end of the day, it's a win-win result, because a much larger ASEAN GNP will be a larger ASEAN market for all the ASEAN companies. And here, the, track, the thing about the ASEAN companies is that I'm glad that uh, my good friend Asman mentioned the enlightened companies, which are already going ahead, like CIMB, you mentioned, going for an ASEAN strategy. They are enlightened ASEAN companies. But they're the non-enlightened ASEAN companies, which are blocking change, which are making sure the governments don't reduce the non-tariff barriers, and allow more trade integration among the ASEAN countries. So one thing, that, Asman, that the business community has to do is, in a sense, if we can persuade the ASEAN business community to look at the world 10 years down the road, which is your question, 2025, I think the time has come for the ASEAN business leaders to provide greater leadership and to tell the governments, don't just focus on the short-term Look at the big picture, and we can benefit. And I can tell you something else, by the way, that one of the uh, benefits of the increased geopolitical competition, not just between U.S. and China, but between Japan and China, is that investment will come to Southeast Asia. Already, Japanese investment has begun reducing in China, and you see Japanese investment coming to Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, and so forth. That's a good thing. We should take advantage of that. But if we want to take advantage of these opportunities, we have to open our markets faster and then more investments will come into our region. And this is where I hope, Asman, you can play a leadership role in doing that. Because if the business community realizes the potential, then ASEAN will be in a great place 10 years from now. Yeah, actually, if I may just interject briefly, the natural consequence of those who've been ahead in building regional platforms is they'll be very nice partners on the global stage, right? I think to the extent that India Inc., for example, you saw you know, investments going out, buying up Jaguar and Tata Steel and stuff like that. Uh, I think you will see this, that the leading ASEAN companies will be either acquirers or at the very least partners as you begin to stitch you know, global networks of businesses. Some uh, you know, related to, for example, 
the North Asian story and Japan in particular post Fukushima, post some of the China issues, mm. uh, you know, and so on. So I think mm. that if you, to complete that, just now I forgot to, yeah, your your question. Ten years from now, I think fortune will favor the brave and the prepared. And those who are further down you, that road. You both sound very much like one of our favorite heads of enlightened companies in the region, Tony Fernandez. Uh, <laughs> in his recent presentation at, at LSE, where he was talking about exactly the same, the same things as, as you would You're, you're biased. It's an alumnus, right? <laughs> <laughs> How could I possibly be? Danny. Okay. First, uh, first thought is that if you think that within 10 years, will already be pushing the limits of ASEAN integration, Arnie. That might be quite optimistic, because I think we're really, really just starting on a treacherous path here. Um, my colleagues up here on the panel have already referred to how, while we might boast to the rest of the world, how ASEAN has actually lowered official tariff rates to 0% practically on all goods. It's the non-tariff barriers that really bite. It's, it's a fragmented system of rules on bank ownership, fragmented system of rules on services, trade and services that continue to plague an open single market here. And it is true that enlightened companies like the kind that Asman runs via Kazana, enlightened companies like CIMB, AirAsia, Maybank, see the benefits to the kind of open markets that we would like to see. It is not just unenlightened businesses, but the ordinary mom-and-pop neighborhood stores, the ordinary people who fear how integration will overwhelm them. And here, political leadership has a huge role to play in communicating to ordinary people the benefits that will emerge from this. Now, having, having said all this, you know, there, is also, there are also economic, you know, economic, international economic considerations here. If ASEAN is going to form the kind of block, the kind of regional block that we think useful, leadership here needs to provide the regional public goods. A consistent set of rules is just one of them, but also in times of economic crisis, somebody has to serve as consumer and lender of last resort. Someone has to serve as financier of last resort. Malaysia ranks regularly among the highest in the world for its credit markets and transparency, and there are best practices here that need to be carried out throughout the rest of the community. I think all of this needs to be done. But if I may, just to finish up 30 seconds on this, there's room for pessimism, but there's also room for optimism. And I come down on the optimistic side. Although this is just the beginning of a road, it is also a very hopeful road that will teach lessons to the rest of the world. We worry... Kishore worries about the 173 cabins on his ocean liner. Okay. If we can think about how we build smaller coalitions, smaller communities like those in ASEAN that can provide lessons to the rest of the world on how it can go about building its ocean liner captaincy, I think this will be a very useful purpose that we will have served. When you think about the, the challenges here, the world needs to set up and pay attention. In this region, we have the world's largest Islamic country. We have world's tiny democracies. We have democracies that challenge Western interpretations of free speech. An LSE alum here, Ken Ming, is a new member of parliament here in Malaysia. He constantly tweets. And I have to say, I am impressed by how parliamentary debate in this country and other parts of ASEAN actually test the boundaries of the ideals of democratic debate. These are all lessons that the rest of the world 
can take. We have in this part of the world big countries with massive natural resources that are poor. We have small countries with no natural resources that are rich. How did you do this? The rest of the world wants to know. And if you are able to build the kind of coalition and community that we hope you can, that will be massively significant for the rest of the world. Thank you, Danny. I will now turn to the audience for questions. I'm going to take a few questions and then let the uh, panel respond. So you guys make notes as the questions come up. Please keep your questions brief so as many as possible will be able to post a question. Munir, on the first row over here. Please. Uh, thank you, Ali. I'd like to ask particularly of uh, Kishore a question. I'm, I'm not making any comment on, on his statements that Americans have got their heads buried in the sand or that you know, the Africans are cowards. Uh, but, uh, more in relation to the future of, of this region you know, and, and your warning against uh, complacency, uh, two points arise. One on the business side. It was mentioned that there were Businesses which are enlightened that go ahead, and, and the examples mentioned were all Malaysian, interestingly. Uh, are there no Indonesian companies that could be enlightened, you know, in terms of seeing the bigger picture? Uh, they are a big country, they have some big companies, uh, and there is an organization called the ASEAN Business Club, Kishore, which is trying to address uh, the, 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 the gaps between political rhetoric and business experience. So... There is some hope there. On the other hand, there's also a division between Indonesia and other countries, Indonesian companies and companies in other countries. How do you bridge that particular gap? Thank you. Thanks, Munir. Others, there's one right at the back over there. I have the people with the microphone running down the aisle right at the end of the room. Show your hands, sir, please. The one, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, my question is directed to all the panelists, and um, um, we were having a discussion here way at the back, um, and we find it a bit hard to understand, or at least to, to think about how uh, the ASEAN leadership uh, would agree on, on, on ASEAN leadership, as it were, the individual countries would e uh, agree on ASEAN leadership, when, when, when many of them find uh, it a challenge uh, to provide leadership domestically uh, in this given current uh, recent uh, developments in, in, in all our member countries. I mean, so the lack of consensus at the regional level um, is, is perhaps outweighed by difficulty in finding a consensus even, in, even domestically. And in spite of that, you do have the enlightened companies like AirAsia that, 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 that can uh, make a success uh, of, of, of the region's opportunities. So I'm just wondering whether really it's a business and economics problem. I mean, certainly the... the it would lower the costs for business to go regional, but business are, businesses are going regional, and perhaps people haven't, even, um, um, haven't uh, mentioned um, Asian banks, such as Singaporean and, and Malaysian banks, that have regionalized in spite of the barriers. So I suppose the question really is, are we, businesses are carrying on, it's just that the leadership aren't, and, and how does that square with their domestic uh, Thank you. situation? Thank, Thank you. you. Anyone over on this side? Yes, the end of the room at the back. Do we have a microphone? Please. Uh, hi, uh, I suppose the question's for the panel. Um, 
No, we, Keep we it know, brief, please. We, we, we know two things to be true, you know, money and the machine gun. Uh, and given like the economic center of the world is moving, as you said, it brings with it unimaginable risk as well. So I'm just wondering, how should ASEAN approach this, you know, the second fact, the machine gun, uh, in the near future? Should, it, it would make for an interesting discussion as well, just, you know, just to get your thoughts and your feelings in this. Thank you very much. The machine gun question. It had to come. What was the question? I didn't get the question. Yes, the lady in green over the there. Don't know. Um, thank you. I'm Sadia from University of Technology, Mara, Malaysia. Um, Professor Danny Kwa, you established that there is a need for ASEAN leadership and that you say that currently there is no such leadership. Um, is there a glimmer of hope? And where would that hope be coming from? And that we know that ASEAN leaders, many of them are educated in the West. Um, would you say that a hope now comes from the ASEAN universities? Uh, I'd like to ask that also to Prof. Kishore. Now that there is a shift, the, the, the geo- geopolitical shift, would great ASEAN leaders be better educated, nurtured and trained in this part of the world rather than in the West and the US? Thank you. Excellent questions. We even got a university question in there right, right at the end. So from machine guns to universities... <laughs> To Danny Kwa. Danny. Okay. <laughs> okay, we agreed that um, it's probably easiest not to try and, and think about identifying each question and answering each question, but just to give a presentation that speaks to the range of issues here on the need for ASEAN leadership and whether as a, as a group, as a community, we can build ASEAN leadership when we have trouble building national leadership. When we have trouble building national leadership for lookout for all of its people rather than just special interest groups entrenched extractive elites, crony capitalists. If we can't do that for a country, how are we going to do that for the region? In some ways, the global problem, the regional problem, might be easier than the domestic one. By elevating the question to one of pursuing a noble purpose that pursues the good of all of us in the region, we can actually evade many of the special interests that squirrel in into discussions of local politics. Of course, the difficulty is how we make that first step. And maybe the question about money and machine guns matters here because in in political science, there's this notion of different kinds of power. There's hard power, for which money and machine guns describe, but there's also the notion of soft power, of being attractive because you have leadership qualities, because you have cultural attributes that the rest of the region wants to follow. And it strikes me that this is an unexplored vein Uh, that ASEAN needs needs to mine. And it might take the form of English Premier League football. It might take the development of some other kind of ASEAN cultural artifact. But it's something that needs to go beyond the local. And what that something is, is is something that we need to be thinking about. I don't think anyone up here has the answers to that. Uh, Let me me make three quick points. Uh, One, to avoid any misunderstanding, I want to emphasize that I'm actually very optimistic about the future of ASEAN. In fact, I already told Asman unwisely in Davos this year that I'm coming out with a book on ASEAN, and the title is going to be The Most Blessed Corner of Earth. And I mean that quite seriously, because, you know, as I, as I mentioned, you're moving towards a multi-civilizational world, the best multi-civilizational laboratory in the entire world is ASEAN. 
Because out of 600 million people, you have 250 million Muslims, 100 million Christians, 150 million Mahayana Buddhists, 150 million Hinayana Buddhists, 80 million Mahayana Buddhists, and you have Taoists, Confucianists, Hindus, and even Communists in Southeast Asia. (laughs) It is the most diverse region in the entire planet. And this most diverse region in the entire planet is now peaceful and progressing, and cooperating. So, while I talk about ASEAN's limitations, I'm actually optimistic that at the end of the day, things will get better. And again, through a combination of factors, through fear of China, fear of India, through geopolitical tensions, but at the end of the day, the ASEAN, I think, will move forward. But I always emphasize that ASEAN moves forward like a crab, you know? It takes two steps forward, one step backward, one step sidewards. But at the end of the decade, you suddenly find, hey, the crab has moved very far. <laughs> you don't know how it did it, but somehow the crab keeps moving decade by decade. But that's the ASEAN way, as they call it. <laughs> the second point is about Indonesia. And Munir, you put your finger on it. You know, the, it is a fact. I mean, we shouldn't... I, I mean, most government officials cannot say it, but I'm no longer a government official. I'm an academic. I can say it now. That many Indonesian companies are right in believing that the Indonesian market is the biggest market in ASEAN. Why should we share it with the rest? So they are the ones blocking change. But I, I think at some point in time, I hope that enough Indonesian companies will do their calculations and realize if they're going to compete with the big Chinese boys and the big Indian boys coming along, your Indonesian market is not big enough. And that Indonesian companies, if they're going to succeed in the next 10, 20 years, must try first of all competing in an ASEAN market, and if they can succeed in an ASEAN market, then they can succeed globally. And therefore, they must realize that, that it is in their interest to do so. And that's the only way to convince the Indonesian uh, companies to do so. But on the other hand, Indonesian leadership, frankly, overall, has been remarkably wise. One reason why ASEAN succeeded is because President Suharto decided in the early years, I'm the biggest country, I will not provide leadership, I'll let the small countries lead, and then they'll be comfortable. And that's how ASEAN worked. But at the same time, it's good to have a wise Indonesian leader. And here, no one has mentioned one of the biggest changes that might happen in Southeast Asia, which is the potential election of Governor Jokowi as the next president of Indonesia. And I was invited last December to spend seven hours with him driving around Jakarta. And after seven hours with him, I can tell you, I was very impressed by him. This is a very hands-on leader popular but not populist, understand what needs to be done. He's a former businessman, uh, furniture businessman. He understands logistics. He understands you've got to fix the ports. He understands you've got to fix the airports. So if you have a kind of a wise, pragmatic leader like that emerging, that could be another push uh, for ASEAN to uh, over the next 10 years. And finally, on universities, my answer is going to surprise you I actually think that someday the rest of the world should send a thank you note to American universities particularly 
Because American universities have civilized the world. And I mean that very seriously. Because it is the graduates of American universities that have gone back and changed and reformed their societies. And more importantly, the networks that Asians have developed at American universities explains why sovereign wealth funds like Kazana and Tamasic can cooperate because they speak the same MBA language. <laughs> and they understand a deal where you make money, I make money is good for both of us. Don't worry about our countries can fight, uh, uh, we can cope. You're, you're we not going to tell the bit about we gossip about the sovereigns. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say anything. I didn't say anything. <laughs> you told me something very sensitive, I didn't say it. <laughs> but you can see that the MBAs from American universities have transformed the world. So I actually encourage more Asians and more Africans and Latin Americans are going to study in American universities, but with one qualification. You know, while the American universities have done a great job in training the elites of the world for the new world, they have failed to train the American elite. (laughs) And it's a tragedy of immense proportions. And I can't figure this out because the same university can produce these remarkably civilized people who transform their countries, but the American graduates remain very insular. And that's a puzzle which I haven't solved. This is, of course, where Craig and I have high hopes for the LSE, that (laughs) (laughs) if the Americans want to send their people somewhere, (laughs) they will know who who to call. Asman. Yeah, very quickly, I think... Uh, although Tansi Mune's point was addressed to Kishore, um, you know, we, we have quite a bit of our portfolio in, in Indonesia. Indeed, I think what you're seeing in China, for example, they've had you know, 30 years of incredible growth. So now, uh, belatedly or otherwise, they've been busy doing stuff in their own country. The big Chinese companies are only beginning to go out. Uh, the big SOEs, in fact, have to go out with the reforms and so on. Right? So similarly... I think there's some of the element. Indeed, it's a big market growing, you know, good margins if you can get in. And there's at least one company that appears in rankings, the likes of you know, some consulting firms. Indofood, for example, uh, Anthony Salim's empire, you know, uh, is a global business in the food and resources area. But indeed, that's not enough. And uh, not just... Uh, them going out or the gaps as Tansri Mune puts it I think we need ultimately to see a certain degree of reciprocity of investments and trade around the region it cannot be you know, one-sided uh, because that won't be sustainable so it's clearly I think uh, in the next 10 years I think Indonesian companies will naturally uh, go out for example plantation sector Malaysia was the leader. We're, we're now number two because Indonesia has gone larger. Of course, there's many Malaysian companies in there, but you will see uh, in the, that kind of resource sector that they will drill down. Uh, to the question on ASEAN leadership, uh, how to talk about regional leadership and you know, your own domestic leadership issues are not solved, um, I think, again, I just wanted to go back to the issues and pressures around inequality, around you know, financial liberalization that's gone somewhat um, you know, uh, overextended mm-hmm. and how this puts incredible pressures between globalization, managing your finances, 
you know, monetary policy that's basically being driven out of, out of um, you know, Mrs. Yellen and as well as out of... The, you don't really control your monetary policy at the end of the day. And making sure that your, you know, your domestic audience and people are basically in equilibrium. Very tough, very tough. And uh, you know, in that regard, I don't have the full answers, but just to highlight to, to your point that businesses grow in spite of governments, I mean, that's slightly demeaning on governments because, I mean, you know, it is very difficult to govern. And I think the, the more relevant question is some of these things, is it governable anymore uh, to, to the extent that, you know, how do you lead in, in a world where the system stability itself is, is extremely volatile? And one of the fundamental systems is we do live, as the saying goes, in financial times. And so the, 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 that, that stability... Finally, the point on hard and soft power, not really my area, but just to make the institutional point that as ASEAN progress or anyone progress, then the ability to build not just the physical capital but the intangible capital, the things around you know, culture and norms, good culture, good norms, knowledge, education, uh, social capital, you know, stuff like that, right? Uh, it's really the key, right? And if you can put all that together and build institutions, then you know, we, we do stand a chance. And indeed, Kishore and Danny and others have highlighted what, uh, to back to the central question, is that I think we and nobody could really lead this world, which I would pose the question, how governable, you know, these are the problem of the global commons, so to speak. But ASEAN can certainly, you know, if not go too far ahead ourselves, but give you know, very clear examples of how to live together, work together, co-invest together. Hopefully, you know, it's got a long tradition of prosper thy neighbour and prosper thy partner. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Osman. Now, uh, those of my students who heard me lecture on the ASEAN, and I know there are quite a number of them here, uh, will know what a great fan I am of that organisation. And it's been wonderful to have a pal uh, at this Asia Forum, where we got everyone, including Kishore, to list themselves as members of the ASEAN fan club, in, not in terms of what it does now, but also in terms of what it can do for the future. So join me in thanking the panel very much for their efforts. <laughs>